Welcome back to the Wise Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and today we are talking about phytonutrients, which is science speak for the good stuff in plants that isn't counted as carb, fat, or protein, or as fiber, vitamin, or mineral. There's more, you ask? Yes, about 1% more, but that 1% is very important, as you'll soon discover. Here on the Wise Athletes Podcast, we search for solutions for improving and extending our time as athletes. We occasionally look under rocks that promise improved health because a healthy athlete is a strong athlete. And what's more, a fate that I seek to avoid is that long decline toward decrepitude with medical interventions keeping me alive despite multiple illnesses that steal my mental and physical identity. Perhaps you seek the same. My guest today on episode 94 is Dr. Jed Fahey, who joins me to discuss the health extending power of phytonutrients. Dr. Fahey is a nutritional biochemist who, following years of faculty appointments at the John Hopkins School of Medicine and Public Health, is now dedicating his efforts toward educating on phytonutrients. Stay tuned to learn more about what phytonutrients are and to what extent they form an important part of nutrition for humans who seek athletic longevity and some basic rules for making good choices, even if you are a diehard meat and potatoes eater. Specifically today, we're gonna to cover what are phytonutrients and why do plants make these things that are so good for human beings? Are superfoods real or should you just eat what you like? Why is eat the rainbow and eat a diverse diet good advice? Is organic produce really better? How does the gut microbiome play into this? and the obvious question of whole foods versus supplementation, and there's more. All right, let's talk to Dr. Jed Fahey. Dr. Jed Fahey, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, yes. Well, I've been listening to you in the uh, podcast universe, and I'm delighted that, to have you on. You have really opened my eyes to this word phytonutrients, and I'm sure that this is an important piece to the puzzle here. We all know that plants have a variety of good things in them, right? There's vitamins and minerals and fiber, and then you know the, the macronutrients of carbs, fat, and protein provide us our calories. But we're hearing more and more now about this other thing that's in there that maybe doesn't make up very much of it, but this thing called uh, phytonutrients, I think it's also sometimes called phytochemicals, that are in plants, which I guess is where the phyto part of it comes from. And so what I'm hoping that we can do here today with our short time together, that you can help me and my audience of older athletes to better understand what's real versus what's hype and marketing about the health and health span promoting power of these phytonutrients. And, and I'll just kick off what I think is true is that these phytochemicals, phytonutrients only represent about 1% or maybe even less by weight of the plants that we eat. Is that right? That sounds about right. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting. For, um, and there are all sorts of ways I can go with this question, uh, Joe, but you uh, talk of yourself as a as an athlete, an older athlete, and you said something to me when we got introduced about my being um, an older athlete also. Yeah. I'm an athlete, I suppose, um, because I – do stuff like biking or, or hiking one, one or two hours a day. Very good. Um, I think it's sad that that if one doesn't do that, if one is a couch potato, um, one is not called an athlete. Hmm. But anyway, phytochemicals, phytonutrients. So there are three words that are sort of in vogue uh, to describe them these days. Phytochemicals is the one I sort of grew up with and, and used academically, scientifically, while I was at Johns Hopkins Medical School for over a quarter of a century. And that's sort of the term in the literature. I retired from active teaching and grant writing um, three years ago. 
and have been consulting for a number of food, small food and 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 supplement companies. Yeah. And you know, it it appears that all of the commercial world likes to call them phytonutrients as you said or bioactives. And I guess the reason for that is that they don't like to conjure up the word chemicals because people don't like to think that they're eating chemicals to lay public. Um, Of course, when you're eating food, all you're eating is chemicals and the whole bloody world is made up of chemicals and your body is made up of chemicals. So it's a bit of a, a, I don't know, slate of hand. But anyway, let's use the word phytonutrients because that's what the public seems to want to hear. Okay. Phytonutrients are indeed um, a very, very small portion by weight of of any plant, phyto deriving from plant, obviously. Interestingly, phytonutrients are present in all animals also because of the plants that they eat. Sure. Less than 1% is the best guess anybody can come up with. But the most intriguing thing to me, um, and this has come to... Uh, come to light scientifically only in the past maybe 10 years or so. The, the number of different phytonutrients in the plant world is, is likely well in excess of a million wow. different compounds. And this is because what phytonutrients are, as plants evolved, they didn't care about us, right? Or they, they cared about not being eaten by us, perhaps. But they had to evolve ways to protect themselves against predation, against pathogens, you know, bacteria and fungi and things like that, against things that would eat those plants or rot them. And so they developed this, um, as Michael Pollan said in one of his books, you know, uh, how the heck did he put it? I keep threatening to write his phrase on my computer, but (laughs) an incredible arsenal of, of chemical deterrence to predation and to pathogenesis. Because plants can't run away, right? They're yeah. basically rooted in place or, you know, some of them are mobile and have flagella and things like that. But basically they're in place and they have to defend themselves. They have to make a stand where they are. And all you need is a very small amount. Um, and, and as a plant, an evolving plant, you know, you don't want to partition all of your energy towards making these chemicals. You have to partition it towards making protein, carbohydrate, and fiber, cellulose, uh, fats, and so on. So uh, these phytochemicals are found throughout the plant body, you know, the roots and shoots and seeds and flowers and leaves. They tend to be quite different in in sort of the mix, the ratios of, of those phytochemicals as you move from plant part to plant part. And we human beings have evolved to be able to utilize these phytochemicals to upregulate some of our defense mechanisms, meaning to, to boost them, um, and, and for a whole variety of, of applications, biological applications that we can talk about. But let me take a breath and let you uh, redirect the question if, you, uh, if I didn't really get to what you were after. No, no, you did, and you kind of leapt ahead as well, so uh, good for you. Well, in that case, can I add something to it? Yeah, please do. <laughs> so so uh, phytochemicals have been called the dark matter of nutrition uh-huh. uh, recently, um, but not my, not my phrase, but I've certainly adopted it, co-opted it. Um, and this is because you know, there's so many of them, they're so really unknown, in, you know, I, you and I can rattle off the, a list of 10 or 20 or 100 phytochemicals, 
but there are millions of them. Um, and I'm actually working with a company, I'm an advisor to a company called Brightseed that is uh, in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and they are using uh, artificial intelligence to identify the phytochemicals and to pair them with some of the metabolic pathways in human beings that they affect, mo- you know, mostly in good ways. Obviously, there are plant toxins also. Um, we typically don't call them phyto phytochemicals or phytonutrients. We call them toxins. Uh-huh. So Brightseed uh, has actually upped the estimate that others have made. Like 20 years ago, I was at a phytochemistry meeting and someone took a poll to see how many phytochemicals each of these wise old men and women thought there were. And the sort of consensus number pulled out of the air totally was about 50,000. Fast forward to today, though, when the techniques we have for identifying and discovering these things are just like orders of magnitude better than they were 25 years ago. And published estimates um, are up north of a million. And as I say, Brightseed, which is probably the place that's at the very lead doing this kind of work, um, has, I think, estimated between a million and five million to be found. And they've identified a huge number of them. So there are a ton of them, and each plant has its own suite of phytochemicals. There's a lot of overlap, obviously, but this is all governed by uh, by evolution. Five million. That's a lot of a lot of different kinds of chemicals. If you are a layperson and you're digging through what supplements are available to you, you know you're probably coming up with maybe 25, maybe maybe it's a hundred. So there's lots more to come. I wonder if we could go back a little bit and before we dive in. Let's let you explain to our audience your background. How did you come to be the expert on these phytonutrients? Well, thanks for calling me an expert. That's very generous. There, there are plenty of others in the world that uh, do similar things and do it as well or better, certainly, that, that I do. But um, I, I started out thinking I would be a classical musician. I played the cello in, in school and uh, had an air conditioner drop on this finger just before oh, audition yeah. season for conservatory. Yeah. Well, it's it's fine now, but it took about a year to heal. So, um, you know, that was the time during which I would have had to audition. So I wound up applying to colleges. I was interested, in, very interested in biology, marine biology. You know, my, my second dream was to become Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> back, back in those days, he was the, he was the hero of uh, oh, sure. anybody who liked the oceans. So I went to college, uh, went to graduate school and got a, a degree in um, basically botany, but plant physiology, focusing on microalgae, huh. actually studying spirulina or spirulina, which is very popular in the health food circles now. Sure. And then I worked in the biotech industry for about 15 years and then went to Johns Hopkins Medical School to work on a project. Paul Talley, a very senior investigator there, had just discovered a molecule called sulforaphane in broccoli in 1992. He wanted someone that called themselves a botanist to help out uh, looking for better broccoli. So I went there, immediately realized I had to have a doctorate to get anywhere in the university system. Yeah. So I got my doctorate in the School of Public Health there while while I was working and raising a, raising a son, raising a family. As broccoli and human health, 1993, from that point on, 
I, I couldn't be an agriculturist at Johns Hopkins University Medical School and Hospital in the middle of the city of Baltimore. You know, I, I couldn't be a farmer, but I had farmer friends that I utilized around the state. But I morphed into, you know, from a algal botanist to, let's call me a phytochemist, or I guess I'm called a nutritional biochemist. Okay. But I always thought back to my high school days that I was going to feed the world with algae. I seriously did. I was going to do it by aquaculture and oyster farming. As I sort of developed, I changed that goal and I was going to feed the world with plants. And I still am, you know. So I'm a pescatarian. I eat red meat maybe once a year when I'm at a restaurant, but a lot of seafood and an incredible amount of vegetables. And, uh, you know, I, I, pra- I do practice what I preach, I think, mostly. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I think the protective power of plants and phytochemicals is, is so clear. And the fact that we, we evolved in a manner that was meant to be at least flexitarian. I mean, we're not, we didn't evolve as carnivores. And you could argue we didn't evolve as full-on herbivores. I, I, you know, I think a, a plant-forward, plant-rich diet is is one of the keys to health span, to a long life where you just don't wake up one day uh, when you're 100 or 110 or you know 95, whatever it might be. Yeah, die young as late as possible. Damn it! It better be a good ride until the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, fantastic. And I want to dive into some of the things that you have spoken about here, just for uh, my curiosity, just take a minute to try to summarize the, the different ways that some of these things are good. I mean, you talked about maybe there's some toxins that are bad, uh, but some of, in some of the ways that I've heard, they, you know, some of them are kind of like magical sounding, but maybe it's just that the body is complex. And like I've heard that these things, which are fence mechanisms, but maybe there are other things in there, like things to make the flowers or the fruit attractive to other creatures to help with the reproduction process of the plant and and different things like that. But how are they helpful? I think I've heard hormesis, which, you know, the little bit of poison in the plant that is a stress to our cells and that makes our our cells stronger as long as it's not too much stress. And then that makes us healthier. Is that one of the ways that this works? Yeah, well, Joe, I'm glad you reminded me that that sort of billing phytochemicals as defense defensive compounds uh, completely is it's not the full story okay. so yeah as you say um, when you look at I mean I'm looking out my window as my I've got two windows a window on either side of my computer monitor as I'm talking to you you look at the flowers and a plant well they're obviously colored and those colors come from anthocyanins flavonoids various pigments that Probably are not there as defensive compounds, but they are to lure ins- insects, pollinators, etc. Um, the colors, uh, for example, in leaves are there probably not to as a defense mechanism, but because there's chlorophyll, which is the green stuff that harvests light energy for photosynthesis, which is yeah. what runs the world. And then there are all sorts of what's what are called accessory pigments that are the carotenoids, which are is a word most people have heard that actually help prevent that chlorophyll from being degraded by all the light it's receiving. Uh So, and those are the colors, you know, when you 
maple leaves turn red and yellow and red and orange in the fall, uh, what's happening is actually the chlorophyll is going away and you're seeing the rest of the carotenoids that are left. Uh. So there are odorants, there are, there are you know, a ton of smells coming from plants that you know, obviously attract uh, or repel various uh, feeders or pollinators. Sure. Yeah, so all of those compounds make up phytochemicals. And frankly, we, I'd have to say we probably don't know the functions of, of uh, many of them, we can right. guess. Uh, another good one, of course, is the cannabinoids in uh, in cannabis, and, and yeah, we've all heard of that one. Yeah, you know these are very rich in the glands on the leaf hairs, and so yeah, this is a case where, and I apologize for getting too nerding out too much and getting too technical, but most people remember when they were in, I guess, middle school or maybe high school, if they're not interested in biology, they still pr- probably still had to take a science class or a biology class. Yeah. And remember seeing these really complex charts, Krebs cycle or various metabolic charts on the walls, which showed how, you know, the thigh bones connected to the, <laughs> to the hip bone and all this showed all these metabolic pathways and how damned complicated it looked yeah. back whenever you were in school. Well, now with all of the technological improvements you you could cover the side of my house with those charts that's how bloody complex the our metabolism is and so each one of the nodes or intersections on those charts typically represents a place where an enzyme has to do something has to convert a to b whether it's converting you know starch to to sugar you, you name it each of those points is regulatable meaning something can make it go get better get go faster or go slower and you know when you think about combining all of these pathways to make a human being there are thousands and thousands of choke points where the slowest part of the reaction is going to govern what happens and all these phytochemicals act i shouldn't say all of them best we can tell most many phytochemicals have modes of action where they can do something to one of those nodes. They can make it speed up or slow down or repress it, stop it. And so I'm not smart enough and won't be, you know, in my lifetime, so many of these inter- interactions will not be understood fully. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that the complex, the, the complex mix of phytochemicals in plants is beneficial. And what we think, and obviously in some cases have fantastic evidence for, is that certain phytochemicals that have been studied well act at certain places in the metabolism of a person and make that metabolism hum better, you know, work better. So you met, you also mentioned hormesis. Hormesis is a word that's um, probably been around, I don't know, for 20 years or so, but hormesis is the phenomenon whereby a little of something may give a beneficial effect, you know, a little more may sort of max out and give a maximal beneficial effect. And then even more, a higher dose is going to have an inhibitory effect or a detrimental effect. Mm -hmm. And I would make the argument that I think many, many of us in the sciences would make the argument that most compounds, very many compounds have that kind of an effect. I mean, even some compounds that are 
frank toxins, like perhaps nicotine and caffeine are good examples, can do that at very, very low levels, um, levels that are probably hard to control dosing of, they may actually have a stimulatory effect on certain pathways that ultimately could be beneficial to your health. But with those compounds and certainly with a lot of toxins that we know of, what sort of wins the day is the, the devastatingly toxic effects or detrimental negative effects Interesting. At, as you increase the concentration. I wonder if this is going to come into play when I ask you about supplements versus real food, because if you're eating real food, then it's sort of a natural limiter on how much you're getting. Uh, yes, sir. It is going to come into play. <laughs> yeah, um, most certainly. When you're eating whole foods and broccoli is a good example most vegetables are good examples. When you're, when you're eating whole foods, there's an auto limitation. There's a natural limitation to how much you're going to get, right? Yeah. So do you start chowing down on cabbage or broccoli or green beans or take your pick and you're going to get full you, or you're going to get indigestion or you're going to get bloated and you're going to stop eating them. Right. And so they became human foods because eating them in moderation didn't kill people. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing we, we all we have to make some guesses about yeah. how people decided certain foods were good. There's no video footage. There's no there's no there's no video, no, no Twitter, no Instagram on that one. So, you know, if you eat something in moderation, uh, one of the, just take any of the foods that we typically normally eat as human beings. If you overeat, you start to get uncomfortable and there's a limit to how much you can eat. If you extract and pure and or purify those fruits or vegetables and concentrate, you know, with an eye towards particular phytochemicals, then certainly there's a risk, just like with any medications, that you can overdose, that you can take too much. And your your question about hormesis fits right into that because um, a lot of these phytochemicals are. This has been proven with human studies and mouse studies and so on are hugely beneficial you know in certain conditions to certain pathways to certain people you could argue at some concentration that one naturally gets in a food maybe a a lot of the food the example i've used frequently is broccoli we know for example from the epidemiologic literature that two servings a day of broccoli on a population basis equates to about a 50% 50% reduction in the risk of colorectal cancer. This is data that goes back to the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you if you extract broccoli and get some of the beneficial phytochemicals, but by the way, leave behind the fiber and some of the other chemicals that are in the plant. And then you have to be, con- then you have to be concerned about uh, if you're trying to equal that 50% reduction in cancer risk, you have to be attentive to to how how much what the potency is of that supplement yeah. because you could give someone the equivalent of you know 40 servings of broccoli a day because you could fit it in pills and i would argue that might screw someone up right so yeah okay i don't know if i answered your answered your question Oh, you did. You did. Thank you. Uh, and, and before we dive into some of the these um, sort of basic kinds of questions that I've got that I think will be useful for the audience here, I, I also wanted to get out onto the table that this that these um, phytonutrients are not just nutrients for us. 
as I understand it, they are nutrients for our gut microbiome, the bugs that live in our gut that serve us or serve themselves and we get some benefit from it. They also react to these phytonutrients. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's been estimated, I'm, I'm not sure what the most recent estimates by microbiome experts are. Um, that's what those that subset of scientists typically calls themselves. They're studying the microbiome. But I've seen estimates that as much as 30% of our energy needs come from metabolism by those microbes in our guts. In other words, if you had no bacteria in your guts, you'd extract 30% less energy from the foods you eat. Huh. Now, that's based primarily on animal studies, but um, you know we are animals and, and yeah. So a significant portion of our energy comes from metabolism by the bacteria in your gut that you cannot do as a, ma- as a human, as a mammal. Your body, if it had no bacteria in it, wouldn't be able to convert you know, X to Y, X coming from either a plant or an animal. So they're extraordinarily helpful. And it is very easy, it turns out, to change, to shift the, the mix of bacteria in your gut. I should just, just clarify, when we talk about your gut or your, your, your innards, most of the bacteria in your, in your gut, in your intestinal tract, gastrointestinal tract, are in your large intestine, the vast majority. There are resident populations in the small intestine, though, and a very small number in the stomach, primarily because it's, in most people, so acid, so acidic. There's an organism called Helicobacter that actually causes ulcers and may lead to stomach cancer, but that has special ways of surviving in there. So when you shift, uh, most people by now have heard of good bacteria and bad bacteria, which is sort of a term that I, I don't know if the the specialists in this area like, but but it it's it's illustrative. So some bacteria are, or you don't want a lot of in your in your gut. Others you do. The good ones, for example, make things called short chain fatty acids mm-hmm. uh, from fibers uh, from fiber from quote non digestible fiber that they're able to metabolize. And these short-chain fatty acids are very useful and used by humans. And then there are obviously bacteria, the bad bacteria that we don't want. And and the phytochemicals that enter their space can alter those populations. They can probably not wholesale kill off populations, but they can repress certain populations of good or bad and and enhance other populations of good or bad bugs. Um, so, yeah, phytochemicals are extremely important in that regulation, but um, I have to say I don't know, and I, I think it's not really well known exactly. It's known how that works, but it's very difficult to do experiments um, where you document that a particular phytochemical is doing it. There are some wonderful experiments wonderful scientist speaking here, but um, where the gut microbiome, the, the, the mix of bacteria in the guts of people in, a, in an indigenous um, population in, in Africa that ate very large amounts of fiber, a very vegetable-rich diet, those bacterial populations were looked at versus 
I think it was Western Europeans on a sort of not a standard American diet, but a, a very uh, modern diet. Yeah. And the, the gut, you know, they, they classified the thousand or so different types of bacteria in the guts and, and huge differences. So, yeah, what you eat influences what your gut bacteria do. The difference in composition of gut bacteria can govern things like obesity hmm. or leanness. Um, so, yeah. Or gut permeability. Or that, yeah. Yep. Leaky gut. Yep. Awesome. Okay, so uh, I've, I've got like a set of questions here that each one could be a series of podcasts. So we only have a little bit of time left. So keep it, keep it short, you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, you know, the, the high-level answer for the lay audience, give us your thoughts. And, and to some extent, this is going to be your opinion, your very well-educated opinion, but your opinion, unless you actually know that there are facts on these things. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking for kind of like the high-level stuff that's going to help people to make good decisions right now based on, you know, what an expert like you thinks. And so here's the first one. How important are these phytonutrients? Can we live without them? How big of a hit would we be taking on our health and our rate of aging and our athletic performance if we are not getting these nutrients? Yeah, of course, that's a that's a guessing question. But is it like a 1% or is it a 10% or a 50%? I think it's a 30. Okay. I, I mean, I think if you look at the things that will mess you up health-wise, okay, so you've got genetics, right? Uh-huh. Genetics is what you're born with. That that may account for, um, I should have refreshed myself on the latest estimates, but um, in terms of cancers and diabetes and some of the chronic diseases we all want to avoid, yeah. that certainly there are genes that will dramatically increase your probability of various cancers, Alzheimer's, et cetera. But the environmental genes and environment are what make, give you problems and make you who you are. From the environmental side, what is environment? Environment is what you eat. It's what you do. And so I sort of divide those risks that you're looking for a number and I'm getting to it, but I sort of divide them into three, three buckets. One is food, food consumption. The other is sleep. And the other is exercise. Mm. And people much wiser than me have opined on all of them. So my guess, and and I am pulling this out of the air, is that each of those counts for about a third of your health, your health span. All right. Uh, You know, when I was getting my doctorate um, over a course of about seven years, I was getting four to five hours of sleep a night. I don't know how I survived. I don't know how I functioned. And in hindsight, I, I'm sure it took years off my life. I try to do better now, although sleep is my Achilles heel. Yeah. Um, I don't do it well. Exercise, I don't have to tell you, uh, you know, is key. My guess is that that sort of contributes about a third to the to the overall pie. Yeah. And I think I think food, but food has got a couple of components: phytochemicals and and eating good foods and properly, and then. The, the demon, which we haven't talked about, but I'd love to, and that's ultra-processed foods. Uh-huh. Because ultra-processed foods wind up stripping phytochemicals out and re- essentially removing them, not not deliberately, but there are very few phytochemicals in highly processed, ultra-processed food, which means all the stuff in the middle of the supermarket, the boxed stuff, the bagged stuff, yeah. the preserved stuff. So I think 10 to 30% 
as a guest for phytochemicals is about as good as I can do for you. Okay. Well, that helps. Let's move on because I've got a lot of questions here for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So the next mm-hmm. one is superfoods. Is that just a marketing term? Are there really foods that are so yep. great that you should focus on them? You know, so we've heard of like blueberries. Yep. I eat a lot of blueberries because, well, I like them one, but it's a superfood I've heard. Then you've yep. got quinoa and moringa and, you know, those kinds of things. What do you think about superfoods? Yep. I used to hate the term, and I used to tell people that I talked to when they used it, go away, you know, stop talking like that. I used to say it's stupid because all fruits and vegetables are good for you. You have to eat them in moderation. You have to eat a a mix of them, you know, mix it up. The term superfoods has become so prevalent. Yes, it is not a scientific term. It is totally a marketing term. But I think it is sort of helpful because – even I now, who was originally very hostile to using it, I know exactly what people are talking about when they use the word superfoods. And as you say, they're talking about moringa, which I am a big fan of. I, I, um, I consume it. I've done research on it. Um, they're talking about kale. They're talking about quinoa. They're talking about uh, acai berries. They're talking about wild Maine blueberries. I live in Maine, and I have... Uh, Scottish oatmeal, wild Maine blueberries, and walnuts every single day for breakfast. Yummy. And homemade yogurt. So, yeah, I I mean, I think clearly there are foods, mostly, I would say almost all fruits or vegetables, that are really chock full of phytonutrients. And and I I guess part of the key is here that we know that those phytonutrients do something. Uh I used to argue that Iceberg lettuce was definitely not a superfood, and I I actually argued to use that as a crappy control, you know, as a as a non-functional control in one of our clinical trials. Yeah. I lost that argument, but because I just don't see much value to it, yeah. doesn't have much taste or pigment or whatever, but it's got fiber. So yeah, I think the term superfoods has some utility these days, and you've mentioned a few of them, you know. I would say every week in the news, you can, you can go and find a news magazine or a health magazine that's got a, a slightly different list of superfoods. Yeah. But that just goes to show you it's it's the marketing. It's whatever's sexiest at the moment. Right, right. But maybe maybe the answer is that I shouldn't feel like I need to eat a superfood that I don't really like. I should focus on things that I like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, especially with people that I mean, you had sort of admitted to me when I first met you that you weren't much of a vegetable eater um, starting out. Um, yes, that's true. If, you know, I have I have relatives who are complete steak and potato folks, and if you can get someone like you or like them to add one vegetable to their plate or two or three, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, if it's if it's bird's eye frozen peas. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. If they can choke those down, that's great. If it's picking up a carrot off a plate of crudités and and chomping on that, absolutely wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah, it's the variety and it's just getting more of them in you. And don't push superfoods on people that don't want to eat fruits and veg. If you're talking to someone that's that's a vegetarian or that has a very plant-forward diet and a very boring one because they're eating the same off-the-shelf stuff. Sure, superfoods are, are great um, okay. to, to, to mix it up. And 
Joe, one other thing. Don't forget spices. Huh? I mean, most, I guess probably all spices are plant-based, and, and they typically have wide array of phytochemicals, many of them very good for you, like piperine and pepper, curcumin and turmeric. So people should be adding spices to their foods to get even more benefits. They can, yeah. I mean, huh? I, I recommend it. I do it. I, I practice it. Um you can substitute salt if you're a salt hound. You can substitute various spices for salt and still have, you know, a, a delectable dinner Wonderful. or lunch or breakfast. Well, great. Yeah. Well, so to add a little bit here to this business of eat the rainbow, eat a diverse set of things. I mean, I suppose a few is better than none by a lot, but why is it better to eat a bigger diversity rather than a lesser diversity? Well, I think those two phrases that you used, which are originated by others, um, eat the rainbow and eat a diversity. Um, I, mean, I think that's good advice because as a, as a consumer, you don't know exactly what's in each of the things you're eating, right? I mean, you could, you could look at the ingredient label, et cetera, but um, I, I, mixing it up and getting a variety of phytochemicals in you is, I think, is I think beneficial and you know you get different classes of phyto for example eating the rainbow you get different classes of phytochemicals that have different modes of action uh-huh. mostly good when you eat you know red yellow green etc purple because it turns out that a lot of these colors signify different types of plants different different organs of the plant um, and have different phytochemicals. I guess another reason to, to talk about eating the rainbow is it's less boring. It's much, you know, it's much more pleasant than eating <laughs> iceberg lettuce every day as your sole vegetable, right? Yeah. That's sort of a, I'm not totally satisfied with my answer to you on that, but yeah. um, that's my, my gut reaction to it. Yeah. And I guess I, I would elaborate on something you hinted at which I've heard before, and it made sense to me, and so I'll just share it here, which is that you don't really know what you're getting in your food. And so if you're always eating the same thing all the time, maybe the thing that you're eating is devoid of the things that you want, or maybe it's got something harmful in it because of the way it was produced. And you're just getting too much of it because you're doing the same thing over and over again. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so that's sort of the missing piece I was looking for in my answer, I guess. For example, let's say you typically shop at a, at a certain supermarket and they source, um, I don't know, take your pick. Uh, uh, let's, let's use iceberg lettuce as my favorite villain. They source it from the same place all the time and it's been sprayed with pesticides and it's gotten under the radar and there are certain pesticides that linger and so you're getting those, you're, you're building up your dose of those pesticides. Or let's say you go to um, a farmer's market locally wherever you live, um, maybe North Dakota, and there's a lot of selenium in the soil or arsenic. Mm. Um, and so you're getting, if you're eating the same vegetable and it's grown in the same place over and over again, maybe you're building, your, your, uh, building up some of these harmful heavy metals. That's hypothetical, of course, but I think it's a real reason to mix it up. And then, of course, there's the issue of organic versus non-organic. Ah, that was my next and, question. Go, dive into this, please. Oh, oh, okay. Well, so if you mix it up, 
you're going to maybe have some organic produce and some not organic produce, depending on how you shop and where. Organic produce is, I would say, unequivocally has higher phytochemical content in general than conventionally grown. There's a very good reason for it, too. Conventionally grown produce where pesticides are used to kill off pests um, in you know large fields in the valleys of California or wherever they're grown, by killing off the pests, you remove some of the reasons, you remove some of the need of the plant to produce phytochemicals to defend itself against those pests. So, you know, it's, it's in, typically in a monoculture, you know, large fields are the same thing. You see, a, you know, the farmer sees a beetle infestation starting using a drone these days. They, they spot apply or they, they apply to the whole field. So it's a very dead zone. The soil is completely depleted of microbes and and bugs, helpful bugs and worms. So the plant is just, I mean, it doesn't have to do anything except get fat and grow. So conventional agriculture, um, these plants have been bred for, um, in many cases, tolerance to the pesticides that are used. They've been bred for yield, get bigger, get bigger, get bigger. Um, In the process, they've lost a lot of their phytochemical or some of their phytochemicals, um, obviously there are some that are required for the plant to, to, to grow and survive. Typically, the, convention, the process of conventional breeding with fruits and veg has led to sweeter stuff, more sugar, because why? That's what the American consumer likes. And so organic produce, on the other hand, there's far more. I've heard estimates of 30% more. I've seen estimates that for specific phytochemicals that range from 10 to close to 100% more phytochemicals. So, yeah, I, I would certainly eat organic if you can afford to and if it's available. And if not, and if fresh fruit and vegetables aren't available, go for frozen rather than canned. Um, there's still a, a worry about plasticizers and BPA and some canned vegetables and um, in fact, frozen vegetables are, are pretty close to fresh in terms of their nutrient content because they're just blanched quickly and then and then quick frozen in the field. Huh. Anyway, I've answered more questions than you asked, I know, but... No, that was excellent. That was excellent. So we rolled. I've always been a little frustrated with this, you know, the organic label and the cost premium, and I'm glad to hear that it's worth it. Good. So we're we're going to run out of time here, um, I, which I hate, but it always is the case. Let's so, let's start to wrap up, and, and let's start with your advice. You know, I mean, what can people do? Uh, how can they get more of these things in their diet? I mean, there's is there some way that you know maybe you can tell us what you do, and maybe you can tell us what you advise people for how do they get more of this in their diet over time so that they don't have to just completely change their diet and, and they're not going to do it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not an expert at this. I, one of the things I hoped to do when I, when I retired from the, the, the needs of uh, being in academia was to write a book and talk about these things. Um, but it turns out that getting people to change their diets um, is really a social science and a psychological science. Yeah. And I'm not expert at that. It's, as you know, it's very difficult yeah. to 
get them to change. Yeah, it's hard for me to get myself to change. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer except to encourage people to find something that they like or can tolerate and start experimenting with it. Yeah, try different um, things and so, maybe you'll like one of them and then you can add that on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, a, a number of people that I know use this, uh, these services like Blue Apron or some of these food, these services that deliver a box full of chow to you each each week that is sort of a balanced diet i suppose if you if you use that because you don't like to cook or prepare or shop then you know that's a way you, you basically here's your food with a mixture of vegetables and meat and potatoes and whatever yeah. you either eat it or you go hungry or you go out to eat you know i would encourage i i think it's pretty fair to say that um going out to eat less or getting takeout less is probably helpful uh-huh. and, and eating, you know, eating the stuff that you have in the refrigerator because going out to eat, you get so much fat and oil and sugar typically, you know, or, or pizza, which everybody loves, including me, but, you know, on occasion. I, there are a lot of books that the lay public might enjoy. In fact, I actually have, a, I, picked these, I picked these off my shelf a few minutes before we got on the phone yeah. just to share with you. Um, these, these, they're, they're, they're all very different, but wow. I can send you the list of them. But I'll just read them off here. Metabolical, that sounds very interesting. It's fascinating. A little bit deep, a little bit heavy, but, but fascinating. And then there, there's an animal vegetable junk. By Mark Bittman. Absolutely fascinating book. Very worth reading. Ah. Uh, for anybody who's got sleep questions or problems, uh, why we sleep. Dr. Walker, yeah. Keep Sharp. Yeah, by Sanjay Gupta, about how to take care of your brain and body. Fantastic. And then Lifespan is the last yeah. one. By David Sinclair. This one, Chickenizing, oh, yeah. Chickenizing of America, uh, by a former colleague of mine, um, will turn anybody off from eating uh, meat, chicken, chicken and poultry especially, but any meat. Oh, um, I need to read that one. Yeah, it's a great book by Ellen Silbergeld. All right. So we had talked about, uh, th- there's some old advice here. I'm going to read it off here. And then you just can tell me whether you think that that makes sense or not. Um, eat mostly plants. That makes sense to yep. you. You said you were a pescatarian. Focus on diversity versus superfoods. I, I had written, I think, from an old talk of yours, but I think you're saying that superfoods, they're fine, but more diversity is better than less diversity. Eating yes, a rainbow was yep. good. So that's for yep. anybody who's not familiar with that, that's just like try to eat lots of vegetables and plants that have different colors in them. Focus on foods, not supplements. And this gets you the benefit of maybe not getting too much, but you also get the other things that are good in the plants rather than that, that one thing that got super concentrated in the supplement. Plus something we haven't talked about is you never really know what's in those supplements. Yeah, I'd like to elaborate on that briefly. So, so there are some supplements I think are worth worth taking. Fantastic. Um, there are obviously good companies and bad companies, um, but this really should be tailored to the individual. And and I don't think there's a blanket uh, recommendation I can make. I do consult for a supplement company, and and you know the things like sulforaphane or glucoraphane from broccoli, quercetin from onions and various other fruits and vegetables to name a couple. Yeah. So, you know, there are supplements that I think one can or perhaps should take, especially 
if you're a meat and potato eater and aren't getting any phytochemicals. If you're not going to change your diet, then do something. Yeah, yeah. But don't just take a, you know, a multivitamin, big multivitamin and say everything's fine. I think people can, I think it's important to know that people can live on a diet without any phytochemicals, but living and thriving and and having good health over a long lifespan are totally different things. So you can probably live and then your health will go downhill with with a bunch of chronic conditions um, in your 30s, maybe even 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and you won't probably live as long as someone who uh, is an aggressive eater of phytochemicals. I just like to sneak one other thing in here. We're talking about how to eat. Um, th- this whole issue of ultra-processed foods and the, the bad things that get put into them is, I think, really important to understand. Things called advanced glycation end products, or AGEs, um, are products of you know heat and pressure that goes into making a lot of these ultra-processed foods. Um, they're terrible for you. Um, I'm actually part of a foundation that's trying to educate people on the on the negative effects of these AGEs. Uh-huh. They're present in grilled meats, for example, but they're also present in a lot of uh, a lot of these ultra processed foods. Um, so it's important to, I mean, that's a sort of that's a sort of disincentive to eating processed food. And what's your alternative to eat fresh fruit and veg or 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 meat for that matter? Right. Anyway. You had some. You had some quotes. We mentioned the name Mark Bittman. Yeah. One of these books. We mentioned the name Michael Pollan. Marion Nestle, uh, N E S T L E, is another one. Another fabulous writer about foods and food habits. Very accessible to uh, non scientists. Right. Um, she's got a number of books. Great. I'll put some um, information on these books that you've described here in the show notes. As we wrap up here, uh, the last thing that I always ask is uh, how should people find you online? Your, you know, your website, your, maybe you're on social media, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, I would welcome you, welcome them to come to jedfahey.com, J-E-D-F-A-H-E-Y.com. Um, I have a website. It's got all of our publications over the years on it. It's got links to some of my podcasts and, and Twitter feed. Um, I don't do Instagram very much, although I have an account and I, I'm on Twitter at the moment uh, yeah. a little bit, but yep. Well, good. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes for people who couldn't take notes on that. Uh, that is great. Dr. Fahey, thank you very much. This has been really eye-opening for me. I have learned a lot more than I even learned from listening to other podcasts that you've been on. So you are uh, truly an expert in this area. Thanks very much. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. You have a great day, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining my discussion with Dr. Jed Fahey on phytonutrients. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a great day.